scripture reading today is uh, Acts 4, 32 through 5.11. When you have those, please stand up. And the congregation of those who believe were one of one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed that anyone belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. With great power to the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or land would sell them and bring the proceedings of the sale, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and would distribute to each as any had need. Now Joseph, Joseph, a Levite, a Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and owned a track of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But, in that, but a man named Ananus, with his wife Saprina, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price of his of, for himself with his wife. Full knowledge, full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it to relate it to the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananus, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land while it remains? While it remained unsold, did it have not? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this, conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananus fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard it. The young man got the young man got up and covered him up and after carrying him out they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval about three hours and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold this land for such and such a price. And she says, Yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and, she, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came up and found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. A great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Thank you. You can be seated. and go to something else. You can hear me? Is it coming through the speaker? Oh, okay. (laughs) 
I am. Where the guy in there sings, I love technology. You're not going to find me singing that. <laughs> well, you just did, but I'm not a big fan of technology. <laughs> or technology's not a fan of me. Let me put it that way. Acts uh, 4, 32 through 5.11 is where we're going to be. The title of this message is Examples in Giving. Uh, we will be turning to one place today, Matthew chapter 25, in a little while here. I'm thankful for Steve reading and for our Sunday school classes and for the worship of music. Maya Angelou, Angelou, I'm not pronouncing her name maybe right, is a poet. And she has written a, a short poem that says uh, something like this, a bird doesn't sing because it has something to say, but because it has a song to sing. And I was thinking as we were singing those hymns, as we sing those hymns, we have both, don't we? We have a song to sing, and there's wonderful truth contained in those songs. We have a song to sing, and we also have something to say. We have a wonderful Savior to proclaim as we worship our Lord and Savior. Let me open with a word of prayer, and we'll begin. I want to welcome our visitors this morning. We could be praying for Rick and Bonnie. They're not feeling well today. I think that's why they're not here. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and ask that you bless our time together. We've come into this place um, from all kinds of different backgrounds, different uh, situations throughout our week, Father, and we pray that you would just remove distractions now, help us to look into your word. Would you show us things that we otherwise could not know or would not know? Remind us of things that we've known for a long time. Keep me from saying anything I should not say. May you be pleased with what is proclaimed and our response to it. I want to thank you in advance for what you're going to do today, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I don't know if you're any kind of a car guy. You don't have to be to understand batteries have both a positive and a negative terminal, right? A positive post and a negative post. You can put batteries in series or in parallel, and when you do that, if you put them in series, you can increase the voltage. If you put them in parallel, if you wire them right, you can increase their amperage. Uh, I was working with my uncle years ago in the tire business, and we were working on some heavy equipment to do some tire work, and it was really cold out, and we had a mechanic come with a welder to jump start a, a scraper, a road scraper. I don't know if you know what that is. It's a big piece of equipment. And um, he turned up the juice too high, and or he connected the terminals wrong or did something. Anyhow, he blew the batteries out of this. Boom, boom, boom. He blew the batteries out of this scraper. I don't know why I'm sharing that with you, but <laughs> the point is batteries have both a positive and negative terminal, and you need both to start something. You need both. This portion of Scripture that uh, Steve has read for us contains both positive and negative examples. Both positive and negative examples. If you'll look at verse 33 with me for a minute, it has this to say, and Ron, thanks for that introduction. Uh, this is a wonderful picture of, a, of the first century church and what a joy it is to have any of that contained in a local church. Hey, the congregation was of one heart and one soul. And in verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Notice in verse 33, there's great power and great grace. The word great there is megas. Mega. Megas, plural. And there's one more mega in our text today, and that's in chapter 5, verse 11. 
and great fear came over the whole church. Mega fear, or mega sphere. Mega grace, mega power, and mega fear. All three of these are contained in our text today. And these are marks of a spirit-filled church. I believe that to be the case. These are marks of a spirit-filled church. Mega power, mega grace, and mega fear. Last week, we discussed the purifying effects of persecution. Persecution on the church, persecution from without, the pressure from without. We see that in the videos that Soren has been sharing with us over the last two weeks. There's persecution coming on the church in this place so far away, and it's causing the church to be purified. That's what they were discussing in that video. Today, we're looking at the concern the Lord has for purity from within the church. There's this desire the Lord has for purity in the church. And the important truth that what we are and what we do is fully known to Him. What we are and what we do in the church is fully known to God, to the God to whom we are going to have to give an account. Now that's heavy stuff. I was talking to Charles about this message earlier in the week and I was letting him know I'm really struggling through this. I would love for this to be this wonderful, glowing, positive message. There's so much positive in the first front side of this message. There's so much positive in this positive example. But the weighty side of it is so weighty. And it, it just is what it is. And so we're going to go through this and just and just look at it for what it is. Today we're looking at the concern the Lord has for the purity from within the church. Because what we do and what we are in the church is fully known to Him, and we're going to have to give an account to Him. God cares about what happens in the church. And I believe that Theophilus, which is who Acts is written to, the lover of God, Theophilus is to see by example that the Lord keeps record of what is done in the church. That the Lord keeps record of what is done in the church. The Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Romans, he gets to chapter 15 and verse 4, and he says, For whatever things were written in the past were written for our instruction. For whatever things were written in the past were written for our instruction. Now, when he's writing that to the Romans, he's talking about the Old Testament, right? He's saying to them, whatever things were written back there were written for our instruction. Well, we have all of the Bible available to us. It was all written in the past for us, and it's all written for our instruction. Both the good examples and the bad and everything in between, all of it is for our instruction. We have before us what is obviously to be taken as contrasting examples. If you followed along as Steve read, you saw that beautiful picture of this church, and then you see Ananias and Sapphira come along, and it's just like, yuck, what are you two thinking? Why? Why? It, it strikes you like that. It's heavy. But we have before us what is obviously to be taken as these contrasting examples. The church has grown to number into the thousands, and it has grown rapidly, and there are needs that are needing to be met. And as a body of believers, God has stirred in their hearts to provide for those needs. And it's a beautiful thing. It's just beautiful. The Holy Spirit is at work. And as Gomer Pyle used to say, surprise, 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 Satan's at work too, eh? 
Satan's at work too, where the Spirit of God is at work, oftentimes Satan is there trying to mess that up, trying to mess with it. I mentioned last week, sometimes the devil just changes tactics. Maybe strategies is the better term, I don't know. A military guy would tell me the difference between strategies and tactics, but Satan's tactics are always the same. He just recycles the same ones over and over and over again. And when this one isn't working, he goes to his next one, right? Today's text sets before us two contrasting examples, the positive and the negative, and two combating influences, the influence of the Holy Spirit and the influence of Satan, and two competing motives, one of encouragement and one of envy. The one of encouragement is a gift of the Holy Spirit, the one of envy is a deception from Satan. And if we just examine the examples and consider the influences and see God, see that God weighs the motives, I think we can see that God cares about what happens in the church. And it's the Lord who takes account. It's the Lord who takes account of what happens in the church. God's the bookkeeper. God's the bookkeeper. And it's not only or not primarily the amount that he's keeping track of when it comes to giving and other things, it's the motive behind it. It's the motive behind it. And, and that's the powerful thing. That's the heavy thing here. That's, it's not the deeds we're doing. It's the motive that God weighs behind the deed. And, and that gets heavy fast. We're looking at, we'll just take these one at a time. We're going to look at the positive examples, and then we're going to switch over to the negative side of the battery and look at the negative examples, okay? So the positive, that's in verses 32 through 37, and we can clearly see these are positive examples. To define the activity in verses 32 through 37 in a word, which is this, I'm going to read it again, verse 32 through 37. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each one as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite, of Cyprian birth, who also was called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. If you were to describe that in a word, generosity would be that word, wouldn't it? I don't know if another word would fit better. Generosity would be the word. And there are so many examples in these verses of generosity that Luke only gives us a summary of all that was taking place. He doesn't give us the exhaustive list of all those that were doing this. He can't. There's probably hundreds and thousands of people involved in this ministry of generosity to one another. It's a beautiful picture of a giving church. And then there's this one shining example he gives of, of Barnabas. But they're giving of their own, giving and sharing of their own possessions to support the need of other believers. And I don't think we should miss that because uh, believers ought to be generous to everyone and to do good to all people, but especially to the household of faith. And this, what take is, what is taking place 
is a ministry within the body of believers. They are providing for the needs of one another. That's what's taking place. They're, they're not going out uh, taking care of the poor unbelievers. They're taking care of one another in the body. That's what's going on here. Not that those things shouldn't be done or weren't being done, but what's being described here is what goes on within the body of believers. And that's the positive example we have. The summary of positive examples in giving. God is aware of each individual case of this. We're not, and we're not given. We're just given the summary. But God is aware. He takes account of each individual case of this and still does today and is still aware of this today. It says the multitude of them that believe and the congregation of those that believed, it has an NAS, were of one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? The recognition that the things I possess in this life aren't my own, but they belong to Christ and they belong to his people. If you want to come use my pickup truck, just go ahead and take it. It's it's not mine. It's it's God's to be used by whoever would want to use it. And, and we have people in this church family that open up their home, that open up their home to me when I first came here. And what are they saying with that? This this home is where I live, but it's not my own. And on and on and on on we could go with that. Just this last Christmas, someone gave up something that they treasured dearly. I think. So that we get not this last Christmas, prior to that, for our men's roadkill dinner, so that we could have mounts on the wall. Something was given in exchange for that. This takes place still today, and God, God takes account of those things. I think Luke is trying to let Theophilus and and also us to know we are to know that this this congregation is one of one heart and one soul, he says. A new and growing community that's never existed before. They are one. And we're to picture them that way. They've been saved by grace through faith, and God has moved in their hearts to give them a genuine concern and care for one another. And the common bond, the common bond is Jesus. The common bond is Jesus. Their eternal destiny is secure in Christ, but just because they are part of the body and they are secure in Christ does not mean that God does not care about how they behave. God is concerned with what goes on in the church and he takes account of all of it. Charitable giving in the modern era outside of the church and sometimes inside of the church, but especially outside of the church, charitable giving seems almost purely for, or if not purely for, so tainted by self-recognition or self-aggrandizement that the picture of what we have here is so foreign to us. I have to take time, and other people that I've studied as I've studied through this and I've looked at this in the past, have to take time and explain what is this? Because it sounds like communism almost, right? you got to take time and say, well, this isn't communism. This isn't that. This, what is going on here, is so foreign outside the church, it doesn't exist. 
And inside the church, it can become so tainted by self-recognition or self-aggrandizement that it's, that it's easily misunderstood. It's easily misunderstood. And one of the ways it's misunderstood is that. It's, it's considered communism. But it's, it's not communism. Now, their giving is widespread for sure. Back in verse 32 and 33, which again I'm going to read. This will be the third time. There's nothing wrong with repetition when it comes to the Word of God, though. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. This giving is widespread. All things, common property to them. It, this, this is something that has just continued as the church began to grow. It started back in Acts chapter 2 and verse 44, where it says this, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. This is just a continuation of the same thing. Just a continuation. Only it's increasing because there's more of the people to be involved in it in a greater need. And obviously that would be the case, right? I mean, look at our church family here. We're not real big, but we have people that get sick and have needs and, and different things happen, and our church family comes together and tries to meet those needs. Imagine if it was 3,000 and then 5,000 men, so maybe fifteen to 20,000 people, and then it's growing daily. The numbers of people that would have needs would become greater and greater and greater. So just the natural need that would take place there. But it's not communism. And what I want to say about that is because it was voluntary. It was voluntary. They did it from their own heart. They weren't forced to do this. And the evidence of that would be in chapter 5, verse 4, when Peter says to Ananias, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? In other words, Ananias, you didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to do this. And once you sold it, you didn't have to give the money. And you didn't have to pretend you gave all the money. It was voluntary. It was voluntary. Communism's not voluntary. What communism can only dictate, it also destroys. What communism can only dictate, it also destroys. Because believers are to be hard workers to provide for themselves, to provide for their immediate families, to provide for the church. Communism doesn't, doesn't excite that kind of thing. It destroys that. It's a counterfeit is what it is. It's a counterfeit of this. I mean, I, I submit to you what you already know, that there is a difference in principle and a difference in practice between this and what communism would be. Communism is a work of the state. This is a work of the Spirit in our text today. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 25. I said we'd be turning there. Let's go there now, if you would.
Matthew 25, verse 31 through 40. Matthew 25, 31 through 40. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from, from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. I just got excited. <laughs> That's an exciting thing, eh? For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, cursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This is what this church is involved in. They're taking care of the needs of one another, and in so doing, they're taking care of the body of Christ, and in so doing, they are ministering to Christ himself. They're doing that very thing. Christian giving, my point is, with regard to this, Christian giving is centered in Christ. Communism is centered in something else, and it's a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit. One counterfeit or another, it's still a counterfeit. You only find this, the true thing in the church. So it's voluntary. It's also energizing because simultaneous to this giving going on, the apostles are engaged in the ministry of the gospel. In verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. This giving that the people were involved with enabled the apostles to continue ministering the gospel, and that was the important thing. That was the main thing. That was the central thing. The other thing was a part of what was going on, but the gospel was the central thing, and they kept it that way. And the church continued to grow. It didn't substitute the gospel of Christ with a gospel of a welfare program or, or something like that or a social justice program or something like that. They didn't substitute the gospel for that. The gospel stayed central. And then, in a lot of ways, the giving was centralized as well. Verse 34, And there was not a needy person among them, and all that... And all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. It was centralized giving in a lot of ways and centralized distribution. There was not an attempt for a competing influence. There weren't a whole bunch of uh, Christians running around trying to thwart the main purpose of the church, which was the presentation of the gospel and the building up of the body of Christ. It wasn't a scattered thing, it was centralized. They weren't out starting other churches with competing doctrines. 
again, the gospel was central and the apostles' teaching was accepted. And later in the New Testament, the distribution to the poor and the widows is given even more structure than this because it was needed. Uh, just, I'm not going to go there now, but you could read about the instructions about provisions for widows and see what complications are caused by getting this wrong. If you want to look in 1 Timothy chapter 5, you'll see it still, ha- it still happened today. If you get this giving thing wrong, you can actually give someone a crutch who doesn't need a crutch. You, 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 can, you can promote something unhealthy in someone. There, there is a way in which giving actually hurts. It becomes a stumbling block to someone instead of a blessing to them. But I wonder how many gave. It talks about all these people giving to one another. They didn't consider their property their own. It would be hundreds or thousands gave. And since then, millions have given. And God cares about that, and he's able to keep a record of all that had been given and the motives behind the giving. Every motive. He knows. Jesus Jesus himself noticed the widow and her two mites. The Bible tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. So much giving. Who would keep track of it all? And I'm submitting to you today, the Lord is taking account of all of it. He's taking account of all of it. He cares about what goes on in the church. Then to this one example, in verses 36 and 37, now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, that means he was born in Cyprus, who also is called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. What a name. who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. It must have been a big chunk of land. He's, he's singled out here. Again, this is a positive example, and we can learn so much from this one example. This man, Barnabas, we're introduced to him here. And I think Barnabas learned, he's a man who found out that it was true that you can't outgive God. You cannot outgive God. He goes on to be mentioned as many as 29 more times in the New Testament, Barnabas does. He sold and gave what he could not hold to gain what he could never have bought. He sold and gave what he could not hold to gain what he never could have bought. Just just one more example of, of Barnabas's uh, character Look in Acts chapter 9 for a minute. I said we'd only turn to one place. I want to turn here as well. Acts 9, 26 and 27. It starts out speaking about Paul or Saul. It says when he came to Jerusalem, that would be Paul. He was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took a hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. There's Barnabas again, ministering in another way. Barnabas sold and gave what he could not hold on to to gain what he never could have bought. 
God was able to use him and continue to use him and use him and use him because his giving, his giving not only was a, a wonderful thing in and of itself, but it was with the right motive. He was trying to encourage the church and encourage others to give as well. And this example of Barnabas sets the stage for the negative example. Again, it seems wherever God is at work, Satan tries to put forward a counterfeit. There's also positive influences. The influence that motivates this is the influence of the Holy Spirit, the unity they enjoy that we read of in verse 32 can only be attributed to the, to the Holy Spirit, the unity of the Holy Spirit, the influence of the Holy Spirit. And then this encouragement that as, as believers did this, they they'd be encouraging other believers to do the same thing. Again, pure motives, motivated by the need, motivated by love. And God weighs motives. He knows the motives. Proverbs 16, 2 says, All the ways of man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the motives. If you've walked with the Lord any length of time, and I know many of you, maybe most of you have, you know what I'm talking about. The Lord weighs our motives. He weighs our motives. We recognize He knows. All right, now let's go to the other battery post. Let's try to connect the negative battery post and try to tighten that down. Because we know, uh, we are to know that God cares about what happens in the church and that the Lord is taking account of all that goes on. And the Bible gives us examples of failure also for a reason. In 1 Corinthians 10, in a couple of places, it says these things happen to them as examples. We have, we have examples of failure in the Bible as well. So the negative examples in giving. And if you were to describe this negative example that we're going to look at in chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, that we've already read, that you're probably familiar with, and your mind is already ahead of where my mind is at, if you were to describe that in a word, it wouldn't be generosity, it would be hypocrisy, wouldn't it? It would be hypocrisy. Pretending to be what you're not. Or to do what you don't. I want to make a distinction here, and this is not original with me, but it's a, it's a good distinction to make. Hypocrisy is not trying to be or trying to do and coming short. It's pretending to be or pretending to do and not really being or doing. Hypocrisy is not trying to be something you're not because we're all doing that. If hypocrisy was trying to be something we're not, we know we all fall short in many ways. So hypocrisy is pretending to be something we're not. In the examples of hypocrisy we have here, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it he had laid it at the apostles' feet, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? This is a husband and wife. 
one of them ought to said to the other one of them, this isn't right. They've let one another down. As a husband, Ananias, as a husband, should have been, what? Washing his, washing his bride with the washing of the water of the word and said, no, this isn't right. And Sapphira should have been this noble woman that said, no, Ananias, this isn't right. We can't do this. But they do it. They do it. And their names are written down. Their names are written down. It's obvious they're in a position of some financial stability. They, they're property owners. I think they're among the assembly that is called the church. In Acts 5.11, it's the first time in Acts that the church is called the church. It's not the first time the church is mentioned. Jesus mentions that first. I will build my church. But this is the first time in Acts that it's called the church. And a great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. It's the first time this name is used to refer to this growing group of believers in Acts. Whatever else could be known about them is not given to us, but the question does come, were these two people believers or unbelievers? Is this to be understood as tares among the wheat or as two believers disciplined severely? That's the question. And I'll just share with you what I think this, who these people are. I think they're believers, and they serve as an example to all believers. I think that's who they are. I think they're believers, and they serve as an example to all believers. I think they're believers because they lie to the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit was pricking them the entire time. When they first set out and said, let's do this, and they sold the property, and they were discussing how much they should hold back. I think the Holy Spirit was pricking them, saying, uh -uh, that's not right. And the day came, and they were going to bring the money, and maybe they discussed what that would be like. And when Ananias comes into that room where Peter is sitting there, I can imagine the turmoil he must have been in, and the Holy Spirit just saying to him, don't do it. Don't do it, Ananias. Don't do it. And he does it anyway. He goes through with it anyway. And how can I be so sure that this is what's going on? Because if I was to ask every believer that's walked with the Lord any length of time, have you ever been in a similar situation? Maybe not to this death. But have you ever been here? I'm not going to ask for hands to raise, but I already saw two heads nod. And I would get an amen. Yeah, I've been there. I've been there. It's a dreadful place to be. It's awful. If they're not believers, there's no reason for the Lord to take them out. It doesn't make any sense. So this is the negative example. The negative influences. I want to talk about that. Satan first in 5.3. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? This is the activity of Satan from within the church, and it is shocking to read. 
It's shocking to read right now. It was shocking to read earlier this week. It was shocking to read last week. It was shocking to think about it as I prepared for this message. This is the activity of Satan within the church. Let's just recognize that it's a very real possibility for Satan to be active in the church, to want to disrupt what God would want to accomplish. Let's just recognize it. I think we're meant to. I think we're meant to know that Satan can do this and would seek and desire to do this very thing. And it may be too common of a reality. But Ananias can't blame Satan. He can't say the devil made me do it, can he? No, he can't. What does James say? But each one is, in James 1.14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good, and, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. He can't blame Satan. Satan can't gain a foothold unless we open the door. So the negative influence isn't just Satan, it's self. And it's not about the dollar amount. They could have done what they wanted with the property or the proceeds. They could have came to Peter and as Ananias was walking in, he could have said, Peter, I'm only bringing a portion because uh, Sapphira and I have something in mind with the rest. It had been fine. He could have brought the smallest portion. It had been fine. The problem isn't the amount. The problem is the motive. It's the deception before the Lord. God views the attempt to deceive the apostles in the church as a lie to the Holy Spirit in verse 3, as a lie to God in verse 4, and a putting the Spirit to the test in verse 9 when Peter talks to Sapphira. The whole Godhead is there. A lie to the Holy Spirit and to God and to the Spirit of the Lord. Yuck, right? What kind of self-motivation would bring someone to lie to the Holy Spirit and to test God? It's not that complicated, is it? Pride, envy, jealousy. Again, the Holy Spirit was probably warning them as they went forward with this plan. The voice of God was something they found themselves having to suppress. They had to suppress the very voice of God within them. That's why it's a lie to the Holy Spirit. The Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 5, and verse 19, tells us two things that every believer knows to be true. He says, we know that we are the children of God. Amen. We know that we are the children of God. And the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know those two things. James says in James 4, 7, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. What a wonderful promise. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If I was to ask again, anyone that's walked 
with the Lord any length of time. Have you ever done that and noticed how fast the devil flees and you turn toward God and notice how fast the nearness of God is there? Just like that. Just like that. Ananias could have stopped just as he was putting the money down and said, Peter, I'm putting this money down and i got to tell you I was going to put it down here as a pretense, but I can't do it. He'd have been fine. Romans 12, 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now the context there is different, but the principle is solid. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you feel yourself go, my point is this. It's not that complicated. If you feel yourself going this way, just stop and say, No. No. I'm just going to be honest before the Lord. No, I'm going to turn back toward the Lord and see how fast he turns it around. Again, the Holy Spirit must have been saying, don't do this. Don't do this. It must have come to them over and over and over again. Could you imagine the conflict within Ananias' heart when Peter asks the question of Sapphira? Can you imagine the turmoil she's in? What price? Is this the price? That's what he asks her. And Peter, in verse 8, chapter 5, And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. I can't imagine the turmoil that's going on in her heart and mind in that very moment. Well, I can't imagine it to some degree, but not to the level that she must be dealing with it. What a price to pay. No peace, no joy, no fellowship. Galatians 6, 7, it says this, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature reaps destruction. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Finally, I just want to close in verse 11 and consider the influence that this event has on the rest of them and on us. It says, Great fear came upon or came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Folks came to understand that there's no pretending before God. These examples set in distinct contrast to one another are there for purpose. And I think the intended purpose is to teach us that God is concerned for the purity of the church and he's aware of all that goes on in his desire. Another thing I think it teaches us is his desire is to, is to extend grace upon grace upon grace. Because imagine if this was standard procedure for God. How many believers would be alive in the church today? If this was standard procedure for God. Again, I think this, this teaches us God is concerned for the purity of the church. He's aware of all that goes on, and his desire is to, to extend grace upon grace. But ultimately, I think we are to know that the Lord is taking account of all that goes on. He's taking account of our motives. With great grace and great power, there ought to be 
great fear. And by great fear, I think it's a righteous reverence for the things of God. Freedom in Christ is not a freedom to do whatever our heart's desire might be in the moment to promote ourselves. Freedom in Christ is a freedom to live a righteous life in Christ that brings glory to God. And and that's what this is pointing to. Freedom in Christ is freedom to live a righteous life in Christ and bring glory to God. And and self-abasement is okay. It's okay. It's okay. One of the most wonderful things I've heard in this building in the last year or so is Ron telling a story about a time he failed. Ron, I didn't talk to you about this beforehand. (laughs) Maybe he'll tell that to you someday. But it's okay. Not only is it okay, it is healthy. It's helpful. It helps us to understand, look, we don't have it all figured out, for one thing, and we don't have it all together. We need our Lord Jesus. That's what we learned in Sunday school this morning, right? Just as you receive Christ Jesus as the Lord, so continue to walk in Him. And how'd you receive Him? Complete dependence. Complete trust in Him. we got to close here. I'd ask you just to take a moment and go before the Lord. And, and look, if there's an area in your life where you got to say, Lord, I, I can recognize my motives haven't been pure. I recognize this could be a very cutting message. I've been in this for a while, so I've had to examine my heart. I'm asking us just to take a moment, allow the Lord to examine your heart, just between you and Him. Lord, if my motives have gotten a little off track, if I've been making my Christian life about me and how I look and about others and how they look and, and that, I repent of that, help me to make it about you and your glory, okay? So just a minute, we'll just close our eyes, bow our, head, bow our heads, I won't even be looking at you, we'll just take a minute and I'm going to pray, okay? Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you that it examines our hearts. We can't know our hearts, but your word exposes our hearts for us, Lord. You you open us up and you reveal to us things we couldn't know about ourselves, Father. And you, you purify us through your word, Father. You cut us, you shape us, you mold us, you don't give up on us. Thank you. Thank you that what we have is an example here. And that example isn't extended to us, Father. Thank you for that. Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you for church family. We thank you for the pure motives that people have and the pure motives that you've given us. We rejoice in those things, Father. And we ask that you would help us, Father, to to excel even still more. Father, help us to resist the devil that he might flee from us. Help us to turn to you and help us to have the joy that comes with that as we find that um, you were never very far away at all. Thank you for your people and thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.